Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Uh, well, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. I'm James Holland, and I'm s- sitting beside my great pal and colleague, I suppose you should say, um, Professor Peter Caddick Adams. And um, Peter, Al, and I are um, it's, are going to the Bulge. It's the 75th anniversary, and you have written the most superb book about it. I mean, I, I can't think of a more comprehensive and definitive account of this battle. Um, not even the official history that was written all those years ago, because obviously quite a lot more information has sort of come to light. And, of course, you have your amazing own perspectives, because you first went to the Bulge battlefield as a young teenager. When in, no, well, you were subaltern, weren't you? You just joined the army, 1980, 1979, something like that? I first went to the Bulge battlefields in 1977, so I was 16. That's amazing. And, and what was it like then? Was it still kind of sort of bashed about or was it sort of tarted up by then? Well, there you have it. I mean, the fascinating thing about the Bulge battlefields is they haven't changed. They hadn't changed in 1977 and they hadn't changed today. OK, so some of the trees have been felled, but they've been replaced. So straight away you get the atmosphere of battle. And because it's a poor part of France, Belgium and Luxembourg, it's never really been developed. No one's been building there for... It's been forest forever. And so straight away you get a sense of what it was like in 1944. Uh, and of course, all the guys dug in, mostly in the, in the forests, because they could use the logs for overhead protection. Uh, and that's where they needed to be to dominate the roads. And all their foxholes are still there. And all the litter that they left, their ration papers, and all the shrapnel that was thrown at them, and all sorts of other bits of pieces, mangled helmets and uh, entrenching tools, were certainly there in huge quantities in the 1970s, which I remember. And they're still around now if you can if you can find them. I mean, you're discouraged from going to look, but you, you inevitably trip over the detritus of battle because it is huge. Mm. But but in, 19, in, 19, in the 1970s when you were first there, I mean, I mean, I can imagine as a teenager sort of, you know, hooked on all things Second World War, Commando Comics and Airfix, you know, you go over there and there are foxholes and there's a rusted old German... Uh, um, you know, Stahlhelm and all the rest of it. I mean, it must have been amazing. Well, I come from what I call the Airfix School of Military History, which many listeners will absolutely identify with. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, age 16, you're practising your schoolboy French on the local farmer. Do you remember the war? And they were all of an age where they could tell you exactly where the front lines were. And I remember this farmer in his barn. We passed him and he was sort of fiddling inside a... Uh, his garage, and there was a GI helmet hanging up by a piece of string on a hook on the wall, uh, and lying down against the, um, the the concrete was a German entrenching to all of this sort of stuff. So these were things he had just picked up over the years from the, the hedgerows and the fields and the woods um, uh, that might be sort of of use to him as a farmer. And all of a sudden that made you sit up and think, goodness me, what else is around here? So, you know, that, that was the setting. And then asking him well, where, where 
the Germans and the Americans were, he would tell you straight away. And he said, right, well, what you want to do is you want to go up to the main road and turn left and go up this little track and you'll see a, a barrier that the, the foresters put up there to stop anyone going any further. Go through that. Um, and that's where the front lines were. So I remember we drove up there. This was about August 1977. Um, found the barrier, walked, walked past it. And there was absolutely nothing. And it was really frustrating. And he, he'd sent us in the wrong direction. Um, and I just sort of kicked this stone. And it wasn't a stone. It was a helmet. <laughs> Amazing. And as it rolled out of the way, I saw a German machine gun or a German bullet. And I picked it up and it was connected to another and to another and to another. And it was a whole belt, 50 rounds of, wow. of German machine gun ammunition. Live. Hadn't been fired. And then we looked around and there was a sort of German canteen cup riddled with shrapnel holes uh, and this had been the scene of a battle and it was still there no one had thrown anything away and, you know to a 16 year old just as a sort of 56 year old or a 76 year old it was absolutely fascinating mm. because the, it was as though the battle had finished yesterday and I always say to people mm. you can't understand military history you can't write about it you can't research it until you walk the terrain. Well, you know, we're, you and I... And you and I do this. I've bored listeners repeatedly, and indeed Al, by uh, constantly saying exactly this. I mean, I, I absolutely, totally... It's more fundamental than that, because you are reaching to, out and connecting with the past. You're touching something that was there. Then. The tactile link. Totally, and I think it's really, really important. Some people get sensitive to this, but in general terms, it prov- proves you're in, exactly in the right place. And you do get a sense of just how awful it was if you pick up a mangled mess tin and know that someone's holding that or wearing it when the explosions happened, when the battle was being fought. Because that instantly brings you away from maps and big things called divisions and regiments and battalions down to single people, which is what it's all about. So to go back to uh, 1944... I mean, one of the things I thought was really interesting about your your work on this was you discovered that that Hitler had started to think about a counterattack in the Ardennes much earlier than most people give him credit for. Yeah, I mean, the the, the basic context, of course, is is you know why why do we look at the the Ardennes? It is the biggest battle the American army fight in the Second World War. It is absolutely huge by comparison, even with Normandy. It sucks in over seven hundred thousand Americans who take part in one way or another in in the Battle of the Bulge. Um, and you know the other big European battle is D-Day. But that's been prepared for for years and years and years. The Battle of the Bulge comes out of the blue, and it's right. America's finest hour because they learn how to adapt on the hoof, and within a month it's all over. And an army really isn't tested when it's prepared for things for years or months. It's really tested well, not when, the it's, same way, anyway. when it's caught by surprise. Mm. Um, and it has an adverse situation that it has to turn around. So that's why the Battle of the Bulge is so fascinating and really of continued relevance right through to today. And you can you can look at any other army and say, actually, how good are you when the chips are down? And, and that's why businessmen study this, because, um, again, something goes wrong with your business. You haven't expected the, the, uh, the unexpected. How do you turn things around to your advantage? And that's the story of the Americans in the Bulge. So I'm full of admiration for them. But if we go back to the sort of big picture, um, uh, the well, Allies... But Hitler was thinking of it in sort of September. He starts sort of muting this. Even earlier. Even earlier, that's yeah. amazing. Um, I mean, essentially, once we've broken out from Normandy, there's there's an un, unparalleled romp through northern France and By Belgium. By the Allies. 
by the Allies because the Germans have fronted all their combat power in Normandy and once that's broken there's nothing to stop the Allies until we really get up to the, the Franco-German border and that takes um, a lot of September. Um, there's the, the hiccup of Market Garden which just comes too late. Um, once we realise the Germans are on the back foot uh, we, we, we cobble together the, the plan that becomes Market Garden um, and I think there's a big a big case of evidence to say, had we launched it a week earlier than we did, it, it would have played into our hands um, because the Germans really were on the back foot. But by the time we launched Market Garden, which is getting on towards the middle of September, the Germans have already begun to recover. Yeah, and they're rebalancing, aren't they? So, you know, the, and this is the idea of Market Garden is obviously a sort of left hook round the Siegfried Line defences to get into Germany proper. Well, Al and I went over there in, in September and... Uh, toured the battlefield and I did a trip on a Sherman right. tank and Al walked around the perimeter and, and we hooked up on Frost Bridge and we had the most amazing time and, and we agonised and discussed at length um, the virtues or otherwise of General Gavin. So we're, we, we, you know, Market Garden is, is, is certainly a big, a big point of fascination for us but there's a whole host of other things going on, aren't there, in the autumn? There's a Scheldt, there's Hurtgut Forest, there's Arken, there's all sorts. Yes, I mean, we'd be wrong to um, place undue emphasis on Market Garden. It's, it, it's the big show, but it's not the only game in town. So we say that um, amateurs talk tactics and professionals talk logistics. And what's really going to spell success or failure for the Allies in the autumn of 1944 is their logistics. Um, and at the moment, for Market Garden and all the way along the front, it's a minimum of 300 miles from Normandy to the front lines. Uh, and that means huge fleets of trucks using a quarter of all the gasoline that they eventually take to the front just in getting there and back. Um, and we wreck our vehicle fleet just trucking stuff to the front. Why? Um, because the we had expected to uh, capture Cherbourg or Le Havre. Both were completely wrecked uh, and can't be used until October, And so there's people November. working round the clock trying to get them back in action, aren't there? I would say that something like two-thirds of the allied total allied effort is in logistics with poor but, but, handling. But in terms of re, you know, rebuilding Le Havre, rebuilding Sherville, trying yep. to get it up and running, I mean, there's guys working on that all the time. Aren't oh, uh, hugely, because you know, it's full of sunken ships and their mind and, and all the rest of it. Um, but so the all Allies, that's got to be cleared up. And that's all that's got to be job. cleared up. Um, and, so, and we've only got one artificial harbour because the, the, the one off the American beach uh, had been Mulberry. blown away, Mulberry A. Um, and what the Allies haven't done is they haven't focused on the fact that um, Antwerp, which is right at the end of the Scheldt estuary, um, is the most fantastic harbour. It's the largest in Europe. Um, and that's captured in pretty quick order. That's captured in very quick order uh, at the end of September, if I remember rightly. But there's a long estuary to get to it. And this is the River Scheldt. This is the River Scheldt, and the Germans command both banks. So capturing a port makes not the slightest scrap of difference if you can't get to it. So we have the Scheldt campaign, which is launched prematurely after Market Garden in revolting weather, um, and it takes over. And the ground boggy, and, 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 and particularly on the on Beveland, on the on the northern on the bank northern of the Scheldt, that's all been flooded. And and at the mouth of the Scheldt, so, so, you've so, got so, this diamond-shaped island yes. um, called uh, Valkyren, hmm. um, and we have to assault that. That's another mini D-Day. Um, with commandos and landing stuff. craft, absolutely. Um, and it's overwhelmed pretty quickly, but I mean, it's another tough fight that we have to allocate a lot of resources mm -hmm. to to plan. This is operate, Operation Infatuate. Um, well, I remember, I remember going across the, I think it was the, the Leopold Canal, yeah. which is just south of the Scheldt, 
um, and you can stop the car, look to your right, and there is a there's a pretty big bunker on the on the northern bank of this canal, now covered in ivy. And I think um, in a battalion that, that that attacked across there, they had five hundred casualties. Canadian battalion that attacked. And we, and, and we forget, you know, this and, whole... and, that's, and that's before you've even got to the Scheldt. That's just get yeah. to the Scheldt. I mean, it's just amazing. And we forget this whole campaign is going on. Well. Our eyes and, and those of our historians today, I have to say, are fixed on other things. And this is really attritional, partly because the Germans understand the value of Antwerp and partly because the weather is so revolting. Mm. So that sucks in the better it part of two very, divisions. It is very weird how the winters during the Second World War were absolutely brutal, one after the other. And not just in England, but, but across all of Northern European and into Italy as well. I mean, the winters in Italy were completely uncharacteristically bad. Re- Re- which just worked against the Allies. And it doesn't help that nearly all our soldiers are out of doors, not indoors. You can't use any of the houses. Uh, and those that are there have been shelled to bits. Yep. Uh, and so the extremes of temperature um, are really debilitating for the Allied armies because none of them expected to be out of doors in that winter. We, To be honest, we expected to be in Berlin, dining out on sauerkraut and sausage and, and comfortably housed indoors. Uh, and this is at a time when none of the armies have specialised winter clothing like we do today. Yeah. There's no Gore-Tex or anything else like that. So you have your, um, your cotton and your wool garments uh, and you freeze and thaw uh, and the biggest allied uh, loss in the winter months... 44 and 45 is not through German activity it's shell it's um it's trench foot uh and a lot of a lot of pneumonia if you look at I mean divisions are down to two-thirds of their strength just before anyone shot at them because of trench foot they dig their fox holes they have to stand in them and the moment you're in in dirty uh, it doesn't matter about dirty uh muddy water that freezes and thaws sooner or later that's going to affect your feet and within three or four days you start to get the signs um, I was just reading a memoir this morning uh, about a chap who felt all the tingling sensation in his toes uh, and he said he knew that the moment the tingling sensation went away that was when he was in trouble because the nerves were being attacked and sooner or later he would lose his toes if not his feet um, and eventually he gets uh, evacuated as a casualty um, back to England and he writes a letter to his mother saying everything is fine, my, my feet have recovered um, but the guy on the left of my uh, of me in his bed had his feet amputated and the guy on the right God. is about to have the same and so this is going on all the time and we completely forget that mm. um, because it's not exciting and dramatic and it doesn't involve people sort of shooting down spandaus yeah so we're up 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 on the Franco-German border um, and we come to the first major town that we want to attack that's German which is Aachen uh, and on just beyond Aachen is the Hurtgen Forest right. so it's a really tough um, hand-to-hand fight for, for Arken, which Hitler is designated yeah, yes, as Yes, you've got these incredible ridges, and you've got that big hill that kind of springs up in the middle of the town. Uh, um, you know, there's lots of sort of dominating features around it, aren't there, as well as the, uh, as the town oh, It's not an easy town to take anyway. It's very old, full of lots of stone buildings. Um, but Hitler designates it as a fortress, Festum. which means... Yeah, Festum Aachen, uh, which means the commander cannot surrender it under any circumstances. And as and when it falls, then he will be blamed. His family will also uh, have the guilt, which means they can be sent to a concentration camp and his children forcibly adopted and all the rest of it. Um, so, you know, that's a, 
an added incentive for the Germans to carry on fighting long after military logic dictates that they should surrender. Yeah. And it's the, also it's the first German city to be fought for. Yeah. And we, you know, we haven't got into the fatherland proper yet. Uh, and so the Germans, it, this is symbolic. So they defend it long after they should. And it's the grave place of Charlemagne, and you know, it's yeah, ancient, it's a Ro- Roman city and all yeah. the rest of it. So it, it, it's it's symbolically important uh, as well as militarily. Um, but it's not just enough to take Arkham because you know beyond you've got this huge area of forest, the Hurtgen Forest, um, which we plunge into, uh, and it becomes a meat grinder for um, American divisions in the same way that Stalingrad becomes a meat grinder for. Um, German divisions in in 1942 Uh, and we simply underestimate uh, the terrain uh, the weather conditions which we've just discussed uh, and just how ferociously the Germans are going to defend. Well, one of the things that the Allies have, have worked out is, is how you um, how you destroy the Germans, but with with sort of as few casualties as you possibly can, or as few numbers of, of men in the in the kind of coal face, is by exercising your huge advantage in mechanisation and firepower. And the problem is, is, is the same thing happens at Casino in, in southern Italy in 1943-44. Exactly the same is happening now in 1944-45. Is that you can't use that to its advantage because the roads are clogged, because they're covered in mud, because there's ten times cloud and the air, you know the yobbos can't come down. And uh, well, more 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 fundamentally, the Allies are using air cover wherever they can, and air cover doesn't really make much difference in an urban setting when you've got friendly no. and enemy forces on top of one another, and it doesn't work in woodland because um, you've got woods because you can't see what's going on. So this wonderful Allied tool of enormous air, cow- air power, which is completely crushing in the summer months and in Normandy, doesn't work in, in the two areas where so, we're doing battle. So why do they go to the Hurricane Forest? I mean, is, is that just a colossal mistake? Should they have just sort of thought, you know, OK, we've got the Reichs, we've got the Reichswald uh, um, next to Holland, you know, we've got the, the Hurricane Forest here. Do we just go round it? Or do you say... We can't really avoid it because we're kind of broad front kind of people. And, and you know, the bottom line is all along the German border, along the West Wall, there just is lots of forest. So by the time you started to kind of sort of try and outflank it, then you're getting into mountains and more hills. And there's just no other way around it. Well, there's the whole broad front, narrow front controversy, uh, which is do we attack the Germans simultaneously on several fronts uh, or do we concentrate all our effort into to one particular area? Um, and if you do the latter, the Germans have already worked out the likely axes of advance, the movement corridors that terrain gives you. Um, and so they're going to... To a certain extent, you are being canalised by, by rivers, by forests. Exactly. I mean, so your I'm option... Looking, I'm looking yeah. at this now. I'm so looking, your I've options are limited. I'm going to look at it. I mean, it's just... It, we're looking at south of, of Arken here. Uh, and, and you can see it's just this massive forest. I mean, it's just extraordinary, isn't it? Right, so Arken is important because it's the first German city, and we need to prove that we're making progress, um, especially in the aftermath of, of uh, Market Garden. But there's another agenda here, of course, which is in November 1944, what's going to happen politically? You've got the American presidential yeah. election. I'm afraid there is a political dimension to this, which is that the Americans, American army has to be seen to be making huge progress and strides uh, to make sure that FDR is returned, and it is as cynical as that. I mean, I'm just looking, I'm looking at this, this yeah. now. We're looking at a Google map, and, and we've got Arken next to it, just a few miles to the um, to the to the west is mm. Maastricht, southwest is um, is Liège, um, and then you've got Malmedy, Bastogne. You've got the Battle mm. of the Bar- You know, you've got the Ardennes Forest. Um, 
to the east of the Arden Forest, you've got yet more hills. Um, then you've got Sedan and the River Rhine um, and the Rhone and Metz. So there is this huge barrier. The, the Americans are, are, are pushing through on the southern flank of the yeah. Allied advance. We've already tried going up north through where it isn't mm-hmm. forested, where it's nice and flat. Yeah. Um, Nijmegen and, 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 and Arnhem and Eindhoven. And that hasn't worked. Then you've got the Ruhr. So you haven't really got any alternative, have you? I mean, OK, so let's do a quick primer on the you, ground you ta- of Northwest Europe. What's your, what's OK, so view? from the English Channel to um, Belgium and the, the Ardennes is about 100 miles. Mm-hmm. And that's fairly flat. And that's where all the invading armies have gone east-west all the way through history. Yep. And a quick glance at the roads. The main roads, you can see they're all straight lines. That means they've been built by Julius Caesar's Roman engineers. Yep. Um, that means that they were military significant uh, route, route corridors, even 2,000 years. Okay. So you go further south, what have you got? You've got the sort of big, big forests and... Uh, All around, from, and this is the Ardennes. We're yeah. looking at the Ardennes here, sort of Charleroi, Liège, Luxembourg, that kind of triangle. Uh, and and south, south of Arken, south of Liège, north, east and everything is, is forested and um, rivers, huge, huge numbers of, of rivers. And, and we can see these borders all run along yeah. the rivers. And it's mountainous. So armies... Well, you've got the, the, yeah. the Eiffel, haven't you? So armies stay away from those kind of areas. So most of your military activity is going to be north of that. And, and Arken is on the very southern edge of that uh, sort of movement corridor, uh, and everything beyond is just, you know, challenging. But politically, that gets us into Germany. You can see <coughs> if you capture Arken, you go further east, you get to Duren, and that takes you to Cologne and all the big industrial cities. And, of course, that's still the powerhouse of German industry, yep. coal mining, uh, iron ore production, all the rest of that. And so, and so looking at that... The obvious corridor is to go Eindhoven, Nijmegen, <laughs> across the Rhine. Which we've just tried. Uh, 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 the Arman, Absolutely. And then go to sort of Enschede and, exactly. and, and, and Bocholt uh, and these sort of places and go through north of the Ruhr, the northern corridor. Absolute, I mean, you absolute. know, geographically, you can't fault it as, a, as, a, as an advanced line, can you? And this, this is why anyone listening really needs to sit down, look at a, a large-scale map that's, that shows the terrain features, just to orientate yourselves, because it, it, it's... it's it, you know, you, you don't need the brains of an archbishop to sort of work out what's going on. But 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 I go back to what I was saying a minute ago. You know, there's Arkham, okay? Yep. So we look at, uh, and I really would urge people to get to get their Google totally, map out because totally. it's just fascinating. If you look between Arkham and almost due south of Arkham is Malmody. But but here's here's the the park natural Haute Fania Eiffel. Okay, mm. now all of this is 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 wood, and this is this is the Herkham Forest, isn't it? There we are, Herkhamwald. I mean. If you've got a massive German um, American army here, south of here, okay, north north of Arken is basically Twenty First yep. Army Group. Yep, absolutely. That's their patch. Yeah, yep. South of Arken, just north of Arken, just south of Arken, is is Twelfth Army Group, US Twelfth Army Group under Bradley, First and Third US. What armies. are the alternatives? Well, there aren't. Uh, so you've got to go through it, haven't you? I mean, well, you know, you've got all these guys here because they've got through Arken. I mean. You know, everyone it's, sort of goes, why, did, why on earth did they go through the Hurricane Forest? I mean, what an insane idea. But, but I, I just, OK, well, give me an alternative. History is made up of, of people and personalities. Uh, and, the, you know, the fact is that the 21st Army Group have tried and failed. And a lot of Americans are going around with a smile on their face saying, right, you know, that's, that's Montgomery. You know, we, we never really liked him. Now we've got to show what the Americans can do. 12th Army Group. Right, where can we go? This is, this is the obvious direction of travel. And we are so big and powerful. We haven't had a single setback since we 
uh, you know, apart from Market Garden and that was airborne forces, we haven't had a setback since we landed in Normandy. We are bulletproof. Nothing can stop us. Right, let's go. And they underestimate first how difficult um, the battle for Arken is. Takes a month. And they have no concept of fighting in woods and forests and just how awful that's going to be. Plus the weather turns and it just grinds up all these divisions. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. So 28th Division, very, very good division, commanded by Dutch Koto, who's made a name for himself on uh, uh, on Omaha yeah. Beach, uh, and his uh, his regimental commanders, including um, James Earl Rudder, commanding the Rangers, now promoted to command a regiment within the 28th. So, I mean, these are really tough men who've been promoted ch uh, you know, on the fly, proven themselves in battle. Nothing is going to stop them and their men, and yet the 28th is chewed up uh, and uh, Cota's reputation suffers really from being in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he never really recovers. Right. And the, the division, ironically, is then pulled out and shoved further south into middle into the middle of what will be the Battle of the Bulge. So that's that's what goes wrong at Arkin. It's 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 a misunderstanding of just uh, terrain, uh, meteorology, uh, and and a big American incentive to say we can do what Montgomery couldn't. And, and we also need to deliver for our president. But but I go back to what I was saying before. What is oh, the oh there are no other you know there, there are no well, other what, what can you do what can you do other than go through the bash on through? Okay, so you go to the south of okay. the Ardennes, and we've got Luxembourg. Yeah, and there's you, another but, movement. But, but you've still got so I mean, that, that's where Third Army is, and that's where Third Army is. So, so they've already got that bit covered. Absolutely. So there's there's nothing really between Luxembourg and. 
uh, Arkin that gives you a, a big movement corridor, which is why it's defended so thinly. Um, and that's the Allied floor. If, if, we, if we feel that that's going to be difficult, um, we're certainly not expecting the Germans to attack from that direction, which is exactly how and why they do. And I think it's also worth pointing out that, that, that Patton's Third Army is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger, isn't it? At this stage, I mean, it's absolutely enormous. Well, I, I was and he's going from sort of you know Luxembourg, Chonville, Metz. This is his his corridor. And again, if we if one looks at the map, you can see it's dead south of Aachen, dead south of 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 the Ardennes Forest, and what will be the Battle of the Bulge. You know, that's your corridor. But that is still you know Metz, and That's still a heck of a tough corridor to go through. I mean, the bottom line is, is if you want to get into Germany, there is no easy route in at all, apart from, you know, no. geographically, apart from the north, and that's already come across. And, and all, the other, all the other obvious movement corridors, the Germans have worked out, and they've known about forever, and they've got them covered. So they're going to be, you know, they are going to be bloodbaths. So we are trying to feel for anything that might lessen the, the, the casualty load. And of course, you know, but but just 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 sorry, just to go yeah. back again to the Hurricane Forest. And I keep sort of pressing this point, but but dude, those who signed off on on the Hurricane Forest have been absolutely kind of hauled over the coals for this. You know, what an insane idea! What were they thinking? Why on earth did anyone think they could they could, you know, get through the Hurricane Forest just like that? If there aren't, any- <laughs> but there aren't any alternatives. I just don't. I don't quite see what else you can do. And I actually, you know, from from an Allied perspective, I think the broad front policy makes sense because you know if you don't have a broad front, that means you end up getting out on a limb. If you get out on a limb, that means your flanks are kind of very easy to counterattack, which is you know one thing that the Germans always do. The one thing that we do have, even though we've got a three hundred mile um, lines of supply, is we do have vast material superiority so to hammer the germans all at once particularly when they're already being hammered from the eastern front as well or what was certainly on hold but the eastern front you know to me makes you know there's some sense to it okay so th- this is all about combat power and the allies have got a huge amount so if you can concentrate it the feeling is you can overwhelm the germans wherever you attack them and that would suggest that uh, a narrow front has me- merits but eisenhower is also a coalition commander and and this isn't just about hammering the germans all along the front so they disperse their forces and you're hammering them all the time it's you giving your coalition partners something to do so they don't feel that they're uh, being sidelined um, so in the north, you've got the Canadians and the Brits in 21st Army Group, so they're busy. Um, then you've got uh, the 9th Army, which we often overlook, as well as... Simpsons, the, which is very, very Simpsons, good. Simpsons, and, and they get on with the Brits very well. Um, you've got the 1st and the 3rd in, in, in 12th Army Group. And then further further south, you've, you've got 6th six, six Army Group, including 7th US Army uh, under, Alex, uh, under Patch, uh, and the first French army, yep. and they need to be kept busy as well. Um, so they're not, you know, they're not feeling miffed. So you know that's why we end up with a broad front strategy. So the Germans all the time are being pressurised. They can't really move reserves around, or that's what we think. Mm. Uh, and but there's a political consideration. There's a practical consideration. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, history has been kind to Eisenhower, and I think we look back and we say, do you know, the, the broad front strategy was right because the, the, there would have been too much risk hanging on a narrow front strategy that ran into trouble and you wouldn't be able to dig it out of trouble that quickly and and you know, even our air power even even our vast resources would make that more of a gamble and we are racing to finish world war ii as soon as we can um and i think arkin is the, the very moment when we realize this is going to go on until 1945 because the germans are not going to fold 
just because of of lo- military logic, um, the Führer is there behind and all his henchmen, uh, and so the Germans have to carry on fighting, uh, even though uh, in their minds probably they would like to to fold and concentrate on their real enemy, which isn't in the West at all. It's on the Russian front. Yeah, I, I mean, but again, well, you know, the other advantage of the the, the supposed advantage is that you know what what all these commanders are trying to do is trying to limit. The number of people that are, are, are coming a cropper at the coalface of war, try and try and keep the numbers of people at the coalface of war to an absolute bare minimum. Now, of course, the irony, of course, is that it's absolutely brutal in the winter of 1944-45. You know, and lots of casualties are, are, are being taken, but they're still as nothing compared to, you know, the casualties on the Eastern Front or or the, the Germans are, are, are suffering, and. You know, there is this sense that, that you know, Patton always gets the, the credit for having the sort of cut and dash, and yet it is Third Army that has, you know... Third Army that has way the... Way ahead, ahead the, the largest casualties, uh, and, and proportionally the largest casualties. So even though it's the largest army in, in... Is it the largest army ever fielded in the Second World War? Yeah, I was uh, reading the Third Army's Chief of Staff's uh, notes uh, only yesterday morning. Uh, and he makes the, the observation that by the end of World War Two, so um, May June 1945, uh, the Third Army had reached a peak of half a million men, um, uh, twelve infantry divisions, four armoured divisions, and the U.S. Army has never fielded as large a an army commanded by a four-star commander before or since. That's amazing, isn't it? And you, especially when one because says you only need two divisions to make an arm. Uh, well, a four divisions to make an arm. Yeah, yeah, in, in two corps or whatever. Um, so you know, this is this is uh, warfare on a gigantic scale. Therefore, this is casualties on a gigantic st- scale. I mean, the, the war in Europe is going to cost the Americans uh, one hundred and ten thousand lives. Yeah. That's a huge number, isn't it? That's a quarter of their World War Two casualties. Let, let's face it, it's an incredibly difficult place in which to fight at an incredibly difficult part of the year um, in a particularly brutal winter. So all of which works against the Allies and they haven't got the shelter until the very beginning of November, something like that. So, 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 so all in all, that's, that's a bit yeah. of a downer. So I think it's fair to say that, that they're caught off guard when, when the bulge is launched. Watch on the Rhine. Operation Watch on the Rhine. Yeah, so you asked me about Hitler and his mentality and, and how long he's been <laughs> yeah. thinking about this. I asked you about that about half an hour ago. And, and here many, we are. We, it's many just goes to show how we kind of get diverted. But this is really important, and I'm glad yeah. we set the scene yes. and we've done the geography and we, we yeah. need to urge I everyone listening agree. to do that. Because get on their Google Maps and have a look. So and often we just is. plunge into the woods of the Ardennes without really realising um, what's going on. So there's no alternative um, to the, the Allies being in, in this area. Uh, we know that it's 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 very difficult terrain, so we defend it very lightly, um, assuming the Germans can't uh, do anything in this sort of area of the Ardennes woods. But they have. And this is the way that Rommel has come in 1940. Uh, no one has ever heard of Major General Erwin Rommel commanding 7th Panzer Division, which he only took over six weeks before the, uh, the um, 10th of May 1940 attack into France and Belgium. Um, and of all the divisional commanders, it's 7th Panzer, the ghost division that suddenly disappears and reappears somewhere else, that captures the German imagination, captures more prisoners, destroys more Allied tanks. Um, and why does Hitler sit up and take notice? Not just because of its combat record, because Rommel's previous job was commanding Hitler's personal bodyguard battalion detachment around his Führer headquarters on his train. Rommel is a known name and face to Hitler and in the really weird 
contradictory world of the Third Reich. Um, you, you score heavily if Hitler knows who, who you are and recognises your face. So he watches Seventh Panzer in 1940. Um, and when things are going wrong in the summer of 1944, what his mind drifts back to always is this triumph of 1940, and he wants to repeat it. So in July, as early as July, before the Germans have been defeated in Normandy, Hitler says uh, to those in his headquarters, including the, uh, the OKW, the Wehrmacht's chief historian, a, a German professor called Percy Schramm, Schramm yeah who's been mobilised as a major, look out the events of 1940. So he goes into the bomb damage archives, pulls out the singed papers, and he's studying these, <laughs> thinking, why? Uh, so, yeah, this is before the Germans know they're going to be thrown all the way back to the Ardennes and mm -hmm. everything else. And Hitler has a sense that, that you know things are going to be on the back foot. And what he needs to do is catch the Allies with their trousers down when they least expect it. And he's the only one in his headquarters who does. And I think what really makes a difference is on the 20th of July 1944, Klaus von Stauffenberg, accidentally on purpose, leaves his briefcase under Hitler's map table. Uh, and Hitler is very nearly killed, very, very nearly. I mean, he's incredibly lucky. He regards this as you know, divine providence. But the, the net effect is he no longer trusts the army, he only trusts his own judgment, uh, and the SS are now going to do his bidding. Which means when the army say, sorry my Fuhrer, sorry boss, can't be done, Hitler will think, right, you're being disloyal. Actually, this is nothing, uh, this is nothing about the practicalities of war, this is because you're disloyal and you're traitors, and I'm not going to believe you anymore. So he believes more and more in his own authority and his own vision. So in September, October, when he's sitting and thinking, right, how are we going, how's the war going to play out? Whenever the army are full of gloom, doomsters and gloomsters, he says, oh, I don't believe you at all. Um, there's nothing wrong with the German war machine. Um, think of what we did in 1940. We're going to do it again. And he's absolutely right, because what we've been talking about all this time is an allied victory fever. The Eisenhower down are convinced they can do no wrong. The Germans are going to lose the war, it's just a case of when. Uh, and there's no possibility of the Germans creating any reserves that can do anything more than irritate them locally. Uh, and the Germans are sort of aware of this. Um, and Hitler does have this vision that, that uh, of a counterattack. <clears throat> so the Germans fudge their order of battle. They create a lot more units by shrinking the size of divisions. Uh, and instead of three regiments they all go down to the size of two regiments they give them a bit more firepower but it means you can squeeze more men out uh, and in the autumn of 1944 uh, all the Kriegsmarine the navy guys who have no ships to man all the uh, air force guys who've got no planes to equip refuel rearm or even fly they're all rebadged infantry they give them about four weeks of, of quick tactics uh, and then they're put into infantry divisions. And this is the rise of what's called the Volksgrenadier Division, the People's Grenadier Divisions, uh, and they're only 10,000 strong, but there are lots more of them. And if you want to be cynical, this is playing around with map pins in uh, Berlin, but it means you have more combat units that you can see on a map, uh, and this is what is husbanded behind the uh, Ardennes woods west of the River Rhine, uh, and all the new tanks and vehicles coming off the assembly lines are likewise collected by the Germans. They're not sent to uh, tired combat units. Uh, they're they're uh, 
they're sent to units that are forming, divisions and regiments that are forming uh, in the Ardennes Forest. And Germany's cutting-edge panzer formations, 1st and 12th SS and organisations like Panzerlehr um, and 116th Panzer Division and the 2nd, all of whom have been shredded in Normandy um, but are now full of new tanks and new blood. And that is the setting. And there's some interesting people in charge, aren't you? Because you've got you've got the the SS army in the north, and you've got the Wehrmacht army in the south. So you've got the six SS Panzer army who are going to attack in the north, and that is a recognition of the fact that the SS, the Waffen SS, and our kingpins and the army are a spent force in terms of influence. The SS have never had an army before, so at its head is Hitler's former chauffeur, Sepp Dietrich, who's been with his Führer forever, but he doesn't believe in this plan. I mean, he thinks... No, well, he's, he's lost, he's, he's lost uh, um, the faith in Normandy, hasn't he? I mean, even earlier then, he's kind of... Yeah, and I mean, questioning decision making. So Sepp is a really interesting um, guy. I mean, he's he, he's an NCO, uh, NCO of Germans, Germany's tank corps in the, in, in the First World War. Great with soldiers, but you know can't plan anything to save. No, I mean his he's life. never been staff college or anything like that. And no. he and he was a Nazi street thug in the 1930s. So he's worked his way up. So one of the SS divisional commanders surrenders his division to go and work for his old boss, knowing that he'll make a hash of it unless he's got someone he trusts and relies on to do to do the paperwork. So that's the six SS Panzer Army. They are given the lion's share of the, the new stuff coming out of the factories. Um, but they, they have the most difficult terrain, the northern shoulder of the bulge. In the middle is the 5th Panzer Army, which is army, not nothing to do with the SS. Uh, and it's commanded by the Baron von Manteuffel. So this is a. But this is a really interesting choice because because <coughs> you know Hitler's lost the faith of a lot of his commanders. Yeah, yeah. Um, he hates the Prussian aristocrats. Always has done. Um, you know, and here you've got Baron von Manteuffel. Yeah, I mean he's everything that Hitler doesn't like. He's he's army. He's an aristocrat. He's old school. But he's done extraordinarily well on the Eastern Front. So um, uh, the first audience with Hitler, he turns up wounded because he's been wounded in combat, and Hitler loves that. Um, and the Baron just sort of says, well, you know, I don't feel anything, my Fuhrer. I mean, you know, this, this is this is all done in service of the fatherland, yeah. and a yeah. good general should it expect to be bit. wounded. Yeah. And you know, this is magic to, to, to Hitler's uh, eyes. So the Baron is commanding a division, and he suddenly gets promoted not to corps command, which every... You know, everyone would expect he goes straight to army command, and that just shows you how Hitler regards him. Also, yes, because why isn't why isn't you know the army command given to Bearline, for example? Um, I think the feeling is that Bearline, who stays as a divisional commander, he's commanding Panzerlehr, yep. is burnt out. I mean, he has been in combat ever since. Uh, like a dot, basically. Rommel's number two, and yeah. always at the front. And I think you know, and he does a big stint on the Eastern Front. Absolutely, he goes back to North Africa. I mean, it's just so, he's in Normandy. I mean, the, looking back, we think Bailene was was sort of burnt out, and I think it's probably how he comes across. Yeah, but the the Baron, I think, is is not only well connected, but does think at, at sort of the upper. Uh, operational level and can, uh, can work out how to command at the higher level of war. So he has this unique accolade. I don't think it happens anywhere else in the German army. He gets promoted straight from a division to army command. I mean, that's right. and, and he's tiny size. He's tiny, isn't he? He's pint size. He he's, he's kind of knee hydrographic. The little baron, um, and you know, people are 
incredibly fond of. He was very, very well thought of um, in the Bundeswehr, Bundeswehr and by NATO um, post-war. officers post-war as well. Incredibly likable. And he, he just got on with the job and he never complained. Uh, and he would always go to the front line and people would take pot shots at him and he'd get wounded. But I mean, he, he was just a front line soldier, soldier, but able to think at army level. And then in the south, we keep forgetting there's another army called the Seventh Army. It doesn't have any panzers at all, uh, commanded by General Eric Brandenburger, who again is an East Front old hand. Uh, and they are simply there to hold ground and stop because the one general the ally the the, the allies have that the Germans fear most, and uh, you know they're quite explicit about this. And all the captured German generals it's say Patton. the same thing: is Patton. Uh, and so their fear is knowing not knowing where Patton is. Right. If Patton is not where he's expected to be, then they're expecting trouble. Um, so always Hitler down. Hitler's, you know, wakes up in, with sweats in the middle of the night, apparently, when he doesn't know where Patton is. Amazing. So th- the third army is the south of the bulge. And quite clearly, if, the, if, if there's an attack coming out of the Ardennes, it'll be Patton's third army that attacks north towards the bulge. And therefore, Brandenburger's seventh army is right. put there as a blocking position, but it doesn't have any tanks at all. Um, and Brandenburger is promoted um, because if you read his last personnel report in the summer of 1944, I mean, he's, he's so old school, he's plodding, but, but the last line of his personnel report says, good National Socialist material. And that's what they're looking for. They're looking for loyalty over professionalism. And he sort of Except combines both. von Manteuffel, who's a kind of exception. And Manteuffel, he, so he does stay in the in the in the Bundeswehr. He's in the army. He's a career army officer and, and survives. The career war. army officer, and actually, like George Patton, has competed at the Olympics before the war in mm. different Olympic games. Um, he's uh, he's a, an Olympic equestrian. Um, <laughs> of course, he is. And I, I I'll give you a story that was given to me only a few weeks ago. So. In the uh, 1960s or 1970s, uh, NATO armies used to do battlefield tours and staff rides of the Ardennes, uh, and the Baron was wheeled out to to talk about the German uh, point of view. And he was then in his sort of 70s or 80s, and the chap I was talking to was assigned to be his his ADC, sort of bag carrier for the day. Uh, And just before the Baron got out, um, he wet his trousers. (laughs) <laughs> and it's just a sort of sad it thing is. it happens to old men and the baron just got out um stood in front of the guys uh and said you know gentlemen as you can see i'm an old man anyway on to business and everybody was amazed at just how well he coped with the you know, potentially embarrassing situation no one batted an eye and they all came away chattering about how this guy was made of you know harder than crop steel and just batted it off <laughs> And they all said we would follow him anywhere. And, of course, that's how his army saw him. That's how his Fuhrer saw him. He just didn't let inconveniences like that that, that get in his way. <laughs> Having a wet patch around the crotch. How absolutely incredible. It's a little thing, but it's, it, it's a story that goes through, goes through time, I think. Did you? I mean, I know you met all sorts of people in, in for, who were there in Normandy. I mean, have you met all sorts of wonderful veterans of, of the Bulge as well? Yeah, I find myself talking to all sorts of GIs who crouched in foxholes. I was in staying in St. Vite uh, for the 50th anniversary yep. of the opening which, on which 16th Alan December. Which are, are hoping to go to, and, and the, the hills 
just to the east where the attack is. That's launched. right. That's right. So I remember coming down sixteenth uh, of December uh, two thousand uh, nineteen ninety four um, wow. to my hotel in St Pete, and the dining room was full. Um, there were probably thirty people in there, and over half of them had been in St Pete that very morning. What, in 1944? In 1944. They were staying in a hotel because that's where they had been, um, not in that precise building. But so, you know, breakfast over muffins and coffee was all about how they remember the artillery raining down on the town and complete and total chaos with the division that still hadn't settled in and taken over everything. This was the 106th Golden Lion Division. Yeah. But they, you know, you've got the... You've got the the memoir right there, and I mean, you know, this is why you've got to go back for anniversaries, particularly, and um, there are far too few of them now, which is really, really sad. Um, but I've been lucky enough to have been doing this for so long that, that you know, breakfast and and and, um, and muffins in many a hotel <laughs> has been shared with a veteran now no longer with us who sort of say, you know, well, the shell came in through that window, or you know, I was overhead in my B seventeen or whatever, uh, and you just get a sense of how unprepared the Americans were for this. So the Germans are on the back foot; they're not expected to be in this sector. It's just before Christmas. Everyone's focused on Christmas. The Germans must be as well. Um, you know, the weather is revolting. I mean, who would want to be out there sort of stomping around in, in two-foot-high snowdrifts and all the rest of it and, and white-out conditions? Uh, no one in their right mind on the American side would want to be. So why would the Germans? And there's nothing in the vicinity to sort of take or capture. So everybody is just off their guard. Marlena Dietrich is about to come to the front to play, you know, in her saucy underwear. And, um, <laughs> you know, that's what everybody's mind is at. And, um, and then... Then it all happens. Out of the dawn on the... 5.30 in the morning yeah. uh, on the, the 16th of December, this long planned attack that Hitler has been pushing for. And interestingly, all his commanders have said, no, it can't be done, my Führer. Um, uh, they would have all pri- privately said, and you're barking. Um, and there's a lot of evidence to sort of say that Hitler, in his, his mind and body, is well and truly blitzed, to use the title of a good book on Hitler's medical yes, yes, condition. Yes. So we think he's you know, well past his prime, he's shaking down one side, there's probably a, the onset of Parkinson's, we think. Um, he's on a lot of pills, and this probably helps to explain why he pushes through the attack in the face of all opposition from you know, all the lackeys, Keitel, Yodel, never mind all the SS. Um, they are convinced that this is going to be a disaster, and the only person who says, no, this is going to happen is, is Hitler. Um, he dictates the orders. And then when people go to him and say, well, can we at least tweak this? Can we lessen this and have another attack there? Um, Hitler says, no, I will not tolerate any change in any detail. And interestingly, the only man who can make any change at all is Baron von Meinteufel, who says, uh, actually, boss, you know, could we, could we do a sort of early morning attack when it's still dark um, rather than a sort of daylight attack? Is that suicide? Um, and so he gets permission to, to launch the attack two hours early in his sector. Um, but, I mean, that's a tiny change. Tiny, tiny change. It's the only one that Hitler allows, which just shows you how much he's... You know, it's, it's his project and no one else's. Well, that's a very, very good place to stop. Um, and you'll be out at the, in, um, 
out there for the 75th anniversary. I'm really looking forward to being in Bastogne. The northern shoulder, really important. The Elsenborn Ridge gets left out of the story. You need to concentrate on that. Uh, and it's well worth going down to sort of the Luxembourg area and yeah. Dekirch, where there is you know, not only really important battlefield terrain, but the most amazing military vehicle collection and museum uh, in Dekirch. So there's lots going on all ar- along the front. Of course, we focus on Bastogne because it's the main route centre, and everybody. And has, because it's Band of Brothers. And because it's Band of Brothers, but everyone has long said, "He who holds Bastogne holds the key to the bulge," because there are all these roads and mm. railway lines that go yeah. into the town, uh, and you can't really go through in a hurry, and the Germans are up against time. But all those who fought in the north and south get really chippy and sort of say, "Well, why is it that you know 101st and everybody else in in Bastogne gets all the attention?" when the battle was fought all the way along the front. So I'm going to make sure that you guys visit all these different places <laughs> along the front and we'll just do don't our best. focus on that. We'll do our best. Well, Peter, that's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you.